Well, good morning. Hope that you brought your copy of God's Word with you this morning. And if you have, won't you open with me to the book, The Song of Solomon. Now, I was thinking thoughts this morning, like, because I knew we were going to have some folks here who hadn't been here at all through the series, and I thought, what an interesting thing it would be to drop in kind of in the middle of the Song of Solomon without any of the context kind of catching you up and, and bringing you to the place that we are this morning especially since a lot of folks are unaware that the Song of Solomon is in the Bible, or perhaps if you've heard of it, you perhaps haven't read it. And if you did try to read it, it was one of those books where you just said, man, that's, that's some deep stuff. And so you keep on rolling. Well, at any rate, um, we are in the uh, middle towards the end of the Song of Solomon looking at what I'm calling conflict resolution, as you can see on the screen here. And it's the second part of that. We began conflict resolution with this couple in chapter 5, verse 2. And uh, it was the first time where we saw conflict make its way into the context of their relationship. And we saw from last week just how easy it is for little foxes. You know, those little foxes that can and will destroy relationships to find their way into your vineyard, into your relationship. And it happens oh so easily. We we were reminded of this from Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 15, when the Shulamite was feeling a little bit tepid in her relationship, concerned about some things. Her word to Solomon was, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. The the vineyard being that of their relationship and the little foxes being anything that would come into their relationship and destroy or ruin or harm their relationship. And as we saw from last week, we saw a few little foxes that crept their way into their relationship. It was a little rudeness from Solomon, a little fox of unkind words from the Shulamite. And it's those kinds of little foxes that when unattended, when allowed to be and become part of the normal discourse between a husband and a wife, that will eat away at the sweetness, the blooms, the blossoms of your relationship and will ultimately turn your hearts against one another. It's a slow fade. But we finished off last week seeing how Solomon's kind response to her verbal rejection kind of changed things. She went from not being willing to get out of bed to not only getting out of bed, but to also seeing and seeking for Solomon as a means for seeking reconciliation in their relationship. And as we saw last week, there can be many obstacles that will hinder you in your pursuit of reconciliation. There are so many things that get in our way when we're in the pursuit of reconciliation that keep us from thinking that it's really worthwhile. Another rude moment, another unkind word, little obstacles here, remembrances of past foxes that brought harm to the relationship. And these are the kind of obstacles that can help, that will prevent the pursuit of reconciliation. But 
We saw that when a heart of genuine repentance is involved, we saw in her life that there were no obstacles ultimately that got in her way or impeded her from the pursuit of reconciliation with her man. And where we're going to pick up this morning shows us just how quickly our hearts can be softened. A gentle answer indeed can turn away wrath. Amen? We've seen it happen many a times. Look at verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. Here we have the daughters of Jerusalem asking the queen a question, Solomon's wife, a question regarding her husband. And they say, what kind of beloved is your beloved? O most beautiful among women, what kind of beloved is your beloved? So there's the repetition of that question. What kind of beloved is your beloved? That you adjure us. If you remember from last week, if you weren't here, she was asking them, the daughters of Jerusalem, in her pursuit of trying to find Solomon, if they could perhaps help in the pursuit of finding her man. And so they're saying, what kind of beloved is he that you would thus adjure us, ask us to help you in the pursuit of reconciliation and finding Solomon? Now, if you remember, we saw from verse, um, verse 8 last week that there were some obstacles that got in her way that would have been preventative from her finding. And so that was what led to the, the, the question, which what led to her pursuit of the daughters of Jerusalem and asking and, and, for the, and for the need of help in trying to find her man. But when you see this kind of a question, what kind of beloved is your love? It gives rise for, the, for the, the, the wife of Solomon here, it gives her an opportunity to say perhaps exactly what she's thinking and feeling about her husband. And so, ladies, let me ask you, if someone were to ask you this question, what kind of beloved is your beloved? How well does your husband treat you, really? What kind of husband must your man be that you are this desirous of reconciling with him? What would you say? What would your truthful answer be, and men, that's a place where you can also think of perhaps what you think she might reply, and if you don't like what you see when you look in that mirror, then you know that you're a person in need of change. Amen? And we should never be afraid to be people in need of change. The, the most scary individuals are individuals who are perfect. Never in need of change. Listen, you don't need to marry somebody that's perfect. You need, to be, you need to marry somebody who's willing to be perfectible. Because that is the warp and wolf of life. Amen? Married couples, you know what I'm talking about. That's the warp and wolf of life. So what would you say? Well, the Shulamite gets her chance to do just that, and we see this reply from verses 10 down through verse 16. She says, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy. I thought my wife was writing this when I started reading it. <laughs> Outstanding among 10,000. What she's saying here is that from her perspective, there's no other man quite like him. To her, he truly is a one-of-a-kind kind of guy. Dazzling personality. 
ruddy appearance, perhaps somewhat like David who was ruddy in his appearance, outstanding when compared with others, which if she was to slow down long enough, you know, having been rudely awakened from her sleep as she was, had she slowed down long enough to remind herself of these things, she perhaps would not have responded in the way that she did in giving such a curt answer to her husband in rebuffing him and turning him aside. Had she only taken time to think these thoughts beforehand, that he was outstanding among 10,000 and perhaps worthy of getting her feet dirty again to get out of bed to open the door to receive her beloved. Which is a good reminder for us all. Remind yourself of who your beloved is. Remember before you respond. Remember before you respond. In verse 11, she said, His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. Head is like pure gold, probably a reference to God making Solomon perhaps one of the wisest men ever. It's clearly not a a reference to the color of his hair, which is black as ravens. His locks seem to be somewhat curly of nature, like clusters of dates. They're dark black hair. Verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His eyes too, like hers, are likened unto doves. Doves here beside a stream of water, meaning peaceful. The idea of calmness, of tranquility, of trustworthiness. When she looks into her eyes, she feels safe. When she looked into his eyes, there was a sense of safeness with him. 13, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. He has a pleasant smell. He smells good. So uh, men wear cologne occasionally. It's a good idea. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. He's got a pleasant mouth. He's got good breath. So, you know, husbands, again, application. Let's make sure we're brushing our teeth before we crawl into bed at night. helpful. His hands, verse 14, are rods of gold set with beryl. Seems he has strong hands. She finds them attractive, well-groomed perhaps. She didn't have all those mangly nails all cracked up, guys. You know, do a little grooming. Your bride might appreciate that. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Now this one's easy, right? He's got an eight-pack and obviously some obliques to go along with it. I lost mine 40 years ago. I think I only had him when I was like, you know, eight years old. I think all eight-year-olds have abs, right? And here, well, okay. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. He's got, in her opinion, nice muscular legs. She liked his legs. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. She's saying that his appearance is as Pleasant to her is the thought of her homeland of Lebanon and its choice cedars. His appearance brings her great delight. His mouth, verse 16, is full of sweetness, meaning that his speech and the way he speaks to her, there's a, it's sweet, there's a sweetness, it's tender, it's kind. This is why she could look into his eyes and there was a sense of tranquility, of peace. She wasn't nervous He wasn't a nervous presence to be around, never knowing if he's going to fly off the handle this way, accuse this, be upset about that. Why didn't you do this? You never do that. 
There was a sweetness in the way he would speak. He is wholly desirable, she says. When given the chance to slow down and to give consideration of the kind of man she knows her husband to be, this is her guy. He is wholly desirable, she says. And she finishes it by saying, This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I like the last portion right there. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Husbands and wives, you ought to be each other's best of friends. Best of friends. If you're going to get in a foxhole with somebody, there's no better to get into a foxhole with than your best friend. Somebody that you know that you know always will have your back. Is always going to be an advocate for you. They're not going to. They're not. Going to, they're going to tell you straight up. Hey, there's an, there's some, hey there's some areas in your life that perhaps you need to be perfectible in. That's what good friends do, right? But they will have your back. They got you covered. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. So if she truly feels these ways about her husband, why then did she respond the way she did back in verse 3 of the previous chapter? I don't want to get out of bed again and put my dress on again. My feet would get dirty. No thanks, but scram. Why did she respond that way when this is the description of how she truly feels about her husband? The answer is pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, she's a sinner. She's not perfect. And we need to remind ourselves that our husband and our wives, they're sinners too. They're not perfect. They are going to at times speak things that perhaps might hurt your heart. And that's where 1 Corinthians 13 love kicks in. And rather than responding in like kind, you respond out of a heart of love. You remember before you react you think these thoughts ahead. You anticipate these kinds of things. You anticipate the reality and the fact that you know that there's going to be a day when your husband is going to say something to you that's less kind than he has previously said to you at times. You need to have those thoughts in mind in advance so that you know how you're going to respond to them when they happen. And you don't just respond back with a harsh and light kind word and kind. Same thing, guys, with your wife. There's going to be some times that she's going to say some things to you that don't feel really well. And you can see there's perhaps not that dove-like tranquility in her eyes when she says it. There might be perhaps some frustration and some anger in her eyes when she says it. And it might be legitimately deserving. Sometimes there's what's called righteous indignation, right? But you remember before you react. You think about these kinds of things before you speak. But it's going to happen because none of us are perfect save the Lord Jesus Christ. And last time I checked, none of us are Him. We're all fallible. This is the simple reason why. And this, these verses let us know that she's truly capable of feeling the ways that she feels about her beloved, that He is wholly desirable. That, that he is her beloved and, and that he is her friend while at the same time saying things and doing things that would seem to contradict those very truths. Remember, sin is never rational. Sin is always kind of that which gets described as moments of temporary insanity. Would you agree? 
You do something stupid. You're like, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Just moments of temporary insanity. But it's what's in your flesh. But you have a new nature. You have the Spirit of God that brings about conviction of sin. And hopefully you have a good best friend that will be patient and kind and loving in your pursuit of progressive sanctification. Amen? Remember several weeks ago when I told you it's better to be single wishing you were married than married wishing you were single? And that you'd better make certain that you love somebody that loves Jesus Christ more than they love themselves? And this is why. Because you're marrying a sinner. And they need to love Christ more than themselves because if you love yourself more than Jesus, you will become a very destructive person within a marriage, very harmful to yourself and to your mate and to your kids. Because you don't have any, there's no guidance, there's nothing over you that's keeping you in check. The Word of God is gone. There's no sense of, I'm, I'm under the accountability of God's Word. That's gone. You've made your own imaginations, your own God, and the way you want to do things, your own God. You're, you have become your own sense of authority. That's a dangerous person in the context of relationships. And this is one of the reasons why I believe we see such a staggering divorce rate within uh, even within the, within the Christian church. Because we haven't learned the art of knowing how to reconcile properly. We, don't, we, we react before we think. We react before we remember. Little foxes, we're not catching and killing little foxes and we give them room to make a stronghold in our lives and we give the devil that foothold. And if you give him a foothold, he will take it. This is why two sinners joined together in holy matrimony must learn the secret. I don't know why I called it a secret, but I've kind of crafted this little saying here. I called it a secret, I guess, because I'm the only one that knows it right now. So it feels good having a secret, but I'm going to reveal my secret to you. Um, it's the secret of making mittens out of foxes. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I felt like it sounded a little strange even when I wrote it, but I kind of liked it. I like the concept, okay? It doesn't come from the scriptures. This came from my mind, but it's the idea of making mittens out of foxes. Now, why do I say that? Well, you saw the passage that we need to catch the little foxes that are running our vineyards, right? And so we saw contextually that those little foxes that run vineyards are any kind of, anything that comes into our relationships. A rude moment, a rude word, a harsh moment, things said unkindly, little foxes that can destroy our vineyards, right? So we need to be those that are committed to doing whatever it takes to catching and killing those little foxes that are trying to destroy our relationships. And when we do that as husband and wife, we then must learn the skill of making mittens out of those fox pelts so that we don't forget. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt a fox pelt. They're... they're, they're, they're um, Durable, they're warm, they're, they're beautiful, they're soft. And if you can imagine putting mittens on your hands that are made of those same little foxes, in other words, you learn the lesson that foxes will destroy, you kill them, you catch them, you kill them, turn them into pelts, so that when you, you learn how to handle one another appropriately. And you remember the reality as, you, as you're handling a situation with your husband or with your wife and you're handling that, with your handling of those, you've got fox mittens on and you remember the destructive nature of responding in different ways because you know the hard work that it took for you to catch those little things and to kill them originally. 
So it's just a way to try to remember before you react. It's not a secret anymore, you know. Now it's making mittens out of fox pelts. It's just a way of trying to bring some application to these things that we are learning. Learn to handle each other gently. Remember before you react. Or perhaps remember before you regret. Remember what is so special about your husband, your wife. Remember those things before you regret. Now chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see that this couple has brought the reconciliation process full circle. Her regret and desire for reconciliation are met with his willing acceptance and forgiveness of his bride. And as is the case oftentimes, perhaps not always, this, the, the sweet lover's reunion that follows the catching and killing of those little foxes can be really nice. Check out chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 is a word from the daughters of Jerusalem. They say, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? As perhaps they've been out on the trail, looking, seeking, helping. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They're still in that process. But it seems from her reply in verses 2 and 3 that her beloved has perhaps found her and that he has returned. And together we see in verses 2 and 3 there seems to be have been a reconciliation of sorts. She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who pastures among the lilies. Now you see on the text here before you, I've got italicized these words right here, his flock. And they're italicized because in the New American Standard translation, they are italicized. And the reason they're italicized in that translation, it's an indication to the reader that those words are not in the original. They've supplied those perhaps thinking that that would bring some continuity or perhaps some interpretive value to what is being read. But if you have the ESV, the English Standard Version, you will notice that this concept of the pasturing of the flock, it's just not there. And I think that's the best way to do that. That's why in my reading, I removed his flock. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture in the gardens and gather lilies. That's where he's at. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, he who pastures among the lilies. These lilies. Now, I'm sure we might remember from two weeks ago when finishing out the honeymoon section of this love song how both the Shulamite and Solomon made reference to their lovemaking as, quote, going to the Garden of Spice, right? I mean, that's probably not something that you might soon forget. Um, we see there in chapter 4, verse 16, when she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. And he says in 5.1, I have come into my garden. 
My sister, my bride, I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then we have the refrain that's neither his voice nor her voice. And most believe, as I do, that this is a voice from God himself in the context of this love song where he says to these lovers, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Now, perhaps you remember that, and if you're a little bit more interested in that sermon all of a sudden, I would encourage you to go back to the YouTube page where you too can see that. But this morning, it seems clear and reasonable to assume that on the hills of sinning with her words, the feelings of remorse and regret, with the clear determination of full reconciliation, having been met with the assurance of forgiveness, that this married couple on the hills of genuine reconciliation and forgiveness seems that he has gone back to his garden. My beloved, she says, has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam. It seems very clear and reasonable that this married couple is ending this little spat they have with another lover's feast in the obedience to the clear teaching of Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 1 where it says, Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. We didn't hear the, I'm sorry, please forgive me's, or I was wrong, no, I was wrong, forgive me, no, forgive me. We don't get any of that. We don't see the long extended hug of absolution. But what we do see here is the results of genuine heartfelt reconciliation in the context of the hard work of husband and wife catching and killing little foxes. You never thought you would like reconciliation so much, did you? Hey! No, it's actually a great thing, and it, could, and it does lead to a lover's feast often. Perhaps not always. Listen to what one commentator said regarding these issues in marriage. He said, in marriage, it is easy to lose sight of how special one's spouse is. Let's not let that be true of us. However much added energy is needed to add to your system of marriage, do it. It's so easy to lose sight of how special one's spouse is. The inexorable duties of life can dilute the delight of intimacy so that what used to provoke excitement now evokes only a yawn. Indifference is a lethal blow to intimacy because it communicates that the relationship is not as valued as it should be. As I said back in chapter 2, there must be a commitment, a lifelong commitment to the catching of little foxes. Now see, Tori and Nolan sitting here this morning on the hills of just about to get wet. They're foxes. What little foxes? Could there potentially be anything that would come into our relationship? Never. Right? Do, do you remember feeling that way? All you married folks? Yeah? Sitting next to your grandparents have been married for how long now? Oh, I'll put them on the spot. A long time. Almost 60 years. Just ask them. They'll tell you. Well, they've been married 60 years, and Dr. Blue says, and they're only 55, Royce. That's some fuzzy math. 
Uh, that, that, math, that, that math's not working out, doctor, but we'll talk about that later. Listen, don't ever lose sight of just how special your husband and your wife truly are. Amen? Fight for that. Fight for that. It's the good fight of faith. It's the good fight of faith because your marriage, Paul says, is a mystery that's re- that reminds us of Christ and his church. Read Ephesians 5. This is why it's worth fighting for. If, if that were the only reason it were worth fighting for, it'd be worth fighting for that. Amen? It's a, it's a model. It's a mystery that reflects Christ with his church. Fight for your marriage with all you got. Now, from verses 4 through 10, we see Solomon reiterating, almost verbatim, the exact words of affirmation and appreciation that he said to his bride on their honeymoon night. Now, there's a few new pieces, but this is almost identical in the center of this. And it seems that this is intended to, to indicate just the fullness of this reconciliation, even from Solomon's standpoint, and the fullness of forgiveness that has been, that has been asked for and granted, and that they are truly back in the throes of their lover's song. We see here in verse 4, he says, Solomon now speaking to his bride, he says, You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. He's saying here essentially that her beauty is truly breathtaking. It says, Her beauty is as awesome as seeing an army with banners. He says in verse 5, Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. So breathtaking was her beauty that Solomon says here that gazing into her eyes made him, if you will, mentally numb. At a loss for words. I think sometimes we might say the cat has your tongue. Your hair, he says, is like a flock of goats. And this is where we get almost a repetition verbatim from chapter 4 in the honeymoon night. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, I'm not going to reiterate what all these analogies mean, so you can go back and see the, uh, hear, listen to that. But guys, before you use some of these analogies, you want to make sure you know what they were. If you missed that sermon, you don't want to just go tell your wife, hey, honey, your hair is like a, like a flock of goats. It's looking <laughs> good. You know, so just make sure you go back and check that out. But your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes, another one, you want to know what's going on here, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Again, he's saying her hair, her teeth, her mouth, her cheeks, all together lovely. And from verse 8 and 9, we see that Solomon wasn't the only one who felt this way concerning his bride. Look at verse 8 and 9, it says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. Now, let me admit here that these two verses are some tough verses to deal with in the context and the flow of the Song of Solomon. And as such, I didn't want to just kind of quickly breeze by them, because I think that if you think the way that I think, you will find yourself asking questions, ultimately questions like, are these queens and concubines Solomon's? Doesn't that kind of ruin the one uniqueness aspect of his love for his Shulamite? 
Does he just feel the way he feels about his Shulamite because she's perhaps superior to all of his other women? You know, or didn't Solomon have a problem with multiplying of wives and concubines? Could these women mentioned be some of those women or other such questions like that? And we know definitively that the, uh, the, um, the accumulation of many wives was indeed Solomon's downfall. We see very specifically from 1 Kings 11.6, it says in 1 Kings 11.6 that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it says that his wives were those who led his heart astray from following the Lord and the Lord's commandments. God told the nation of Israel, when you go into the land, you're going to ask for yourselves a king like all the other nations around you. And he told them two things, essentially. Don't be like the other kings who accumulate for themselves many horses and many wives. Stay true to the, 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 the relational structure that I gave you when you go into the land. You want a king like the other kings of the land? That's fine, but don't behave like them. And we see that Israel's kings failed in that. And as I mentioned in my opening sermon, Solomon, while the human author of this love song, is not an example of what it looks like to be a one-woman man. Committed for life. However, seeing that God is the ultimate author of all Scripture, he has used Solomon as a crooked stick to strike some straight licks to write a love song that gives us God's instructions on how to make our one true love song that which honors and glorifies God and is a sweet blessing for all of us in our own marriages and love songs. So verses 8 and 9 are a bit of a black box to me. There's truly not enough information in the text to make certain conclusions about who these women are. They... Both could be and don't have to be Solomon's other women. There are some commentators on the Song of Solomon that believe that in writing of the Shulamite, he is writing of his first true love, his first wife. And that perhaps that the queens and the concubines mentioned here were other queens throughout the land. That Like there was a queen of Sheba. Perhaps it's a reference to those queens. Or perhaps it was some, some leftover ladies from David's court. There's some other ways of looking at it, but the context just doesn't give us enough information. That's why I say it's a bit like a black box, but I'm not giving Solomon a skate here either, am I? And I just don't feel like we can honestly approach this and do it that way. I think we need to be honest and open about the text. There's a lot of commentators that I read on this section, and you know what they did when they get to verse 8 and 9? They skip right over it like a rock skipping across water. They don't want to touch it. They don't mess with it. Or they give it some fanciful application that doesn't really seem to touch what's being said in the text at all. And it's just not a fair rending of what the text is saying. But one of the things that we do know contextually is what? When we look at the text of the Song of Solomon, we clearly see within this context the intent of the original author, and let's say that's God himself because God wrote the Bible and he used human authors to do it, the clear intent wasn't to get in the quagmire of trying to figure out who these queens and concubines and maidens were. The clear intent 
within the context of the flow of this scripture is the show that, was the show that Solomon believed his wife, the Shulamite, to be an amazing gal and that there were other royal women who felt the exact same way about her. And I think it would be uh, do, excuse me, doing us well if we stayed in that stride as well. Amen? That's the best I can deal with these verses. Verse 10. Solomon says, and this is now Solomon, he says, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. We're dealing with, obviously, very poetic language here. And in keeping, again, with the context and the flow of this, the, the larger section of chapter 5, verse 2, all the way down through chapter 6, verse 13, which is the larger context of that of reconciliation, in trying to maintain the flow of these verses and the, 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 the most logical direction with which they are moving, it would seem that verse 10 here, in keeping in stride with that theme, in the poetic language that's used here, in keeping with that theme of reconciliation, when he says that she grows like the dawn. Who is this that grows like the dawn? It would seem that he's making reference to her persistent pursuit of reconciliation. And how do I say that? Well, when you think of the dawn. The dawn is the, the sun as it's rising over the horizon at its farthest point. And then it grows, and as the earth is rotating or as the sun is rising, there's a growing like the dawn. And it would seem that at once where her words put them at somewhat of a distance into one another, thus the need for reconciliation, just as the dawn grows and the morning light grows, so too her pursuit of her man and her pursuit and her intentions for having a pure reconciliation also grew and came into full view. That's seeming to me to kind of keep in contextually what's happening in this love song and with this poetic language. Who is this that grows like the dawn? as beautiful as the full moon. And it's the desire of reconciliation that truly is a beautiful expression of love, isn't it? Perhaps even as beautiful as a full moon in all of its splendor. As pure as the sun, as, as genuine as her desires were to find true reconciliation... It's a sure sign of someone who has pure motives. Not just an attitude of wanting to get past an argument, just to get past it. Okay, okay, let's sweep it under the rug. But she truly wanted to deal with the heart of the matter, as did Solomon. Pure motives, perhaps even as pure as the sun. Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? And just like an army with banners must have been an awesome sight. And let's face it, that would be awesome, right? Ryan, that'd be awesome. An army and all of its banners, that would be an awesome sight indeed. Her desire for true reconciliation was an awesome thing to see. That's my best rendering of how verse 10 is in kept with the context and the flow 
of this lover's song and their desire to seek for pure reconciliation for one another. And for every true love song that there's ever been on God's green earth, there has always been and will always be a need for hearts just like this one. Hearts willing to grow like the dawn, to draw near, not push away, because reconciliation is beautiful, it's pure, and it's awesome. Hearts willing to do the hard thing to keep growing in the art of reconciliation. May this be said of each of us as we grow in our capacities to pursue our spouse when we sin against one another. Now verse 11. Here we have the Shulamite speaking again, and she says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. We see in verse 11 the intentionality here of the Shulamite, which correlates well with her pursuit of reconciliation. Notice that she says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded, and to see whether the pomegranates had bloomed. All relationships need intentionality, attending to, a paying a close attention to, purposefully taking time to take assessment of things in the relationship. Are things in your relationship blossoming? Are things in your relationship budding? Are things in your relationship blooming? Why or why not? Are there little foxes in your vineyard? Do they need catching? Do they need killing? Paying close attention to your relationship as their relationship as ours needs tending. The art of reconciliation is the purposeful pursuit of a more perfect union between you and your spouse. And verse 12 is simply then an expression of the good fruit of righteous reconciliation. Notice verse 12. I forgot to show you 11. There was 11. And then there's 12. It says, Before I was aware... Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. It's like she's saying, before I knew it, before I was aware of it, the relational breach between she and her husband, between her and Solomon, had been repaired, and she once again was put over the chariots of her noble people. She was once again in her own eyes and in Solomon's eyes and in the eyes of anybody looking, she and he had reconciled and their relationship was in a right place. Reconciliation paid off, the pursuit of it, as it always will and should, when we tend to it properly. Amen? Amen. Let it be so. Now verse 13. Verse 13a seems to be the voice of the maidens again from verse 9. Those who in seeing her called her blessed and who praised her. They again here seem to be in amazement of the nobility of the character of this woman and her tendency to make things relationally right or her tenacity to make things relationally right with her husband. Notice they say at the beginning of verse 13, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back that we may gaze at you. And it seems to me that their desire to gaze at this woman isn't primarily for the appreciative value there is in admiring her stunning beauty, but rather for the purpose of gazing upon her skillfulness of relational management to gaze upon and thereby learn from, to gaze for the purpose of learning about the art of reconciliation from this woman who truly wants her love song to be meaningful. 
It's what my Lisa did is she would go over to the home of Marquita Strader once a week to sit at the feet of an older woman in the church who would share practical biblical wisdom with her as a younger sister wanting to do things right in her marriage. Lisa was there to gaze upon Marquita as Marquita followed Christ. To gaze upon Marquita, not for the purpose of lifting Marquita up, but for the art of learning the art of biblical womanhood from someone who had walked before her down that trod, down that path. This is why the poetic language has them, it seems, clamoring for the Shulamite to come back and to stay a while longer so that they can gaze upon her. And it seems here with Solomon's ending words in verse 13, notice what Solomon says. He's like, why should you gaze at the Shulamite? Come back that we may gaze at you. He's like, why should you gaze at the Shulamite? As at the dance of the two companies? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? As at the dance of two companies. Man, don't you love it when you get to a passage like this and you're like, what? Dr. Blue, come up here and tell me what that means. Thank you. Thank you. As at the dance of two companies. Solomon is saying, why would you want to gaze at the Shulamite? What benefit do you seek in gaining in, your, in, your, in all your gazing? Now, the ESV says, instead of saying, at, as at the dance of two companies, the ESV says, as upon a dance before two armies. Poetic language, indeed. Solomon here is also, it, seem, it seems, praising the Shulamite skillfulness of reconciliation. And though hyperbolic... He compares what she has done in reconciling their relationship as being that which could also reconcile two armies and bring them together on the dance floor. Seems to be how Solomon is recognizing the amazing job and the heart of this woman who truly desired to reconcile their relationship. And he is saying to those maidens, why would you prefer to gaze upon the Shulamite? Because she's got skills that you need. Her heart was so pure. Her desire to seek reconciliation with her, with her husband was so true, it could even reconcile two armies and bring them together as if on a dance floor. You see that? She's a woman worthy of gazing at. That's why I said a couple of weeks ago for us young folks, listen, you need, to, you need to get with some of the older folks in this congregation like a Bruce and Patty Havens, and you need to sit with them and you need to gaze upon them. And say, how did you get here after 65 years of marriage where we can tell when you look into each other's eyes, you still love each other? What did you do? And gaze upon that. Learn from that. So that you can grow in a way that brings blessing to your life and glory to God. Life really isn't that complicated. There's a lot of simplicities to life. We just have to be willing to do the hard work the hard work of catching foxes and killing them and doing the right next thing to the glory of God. Amen? Well, I'm out of time. I could give you about 10 applicational points here, but I think you've probably picked up on some of them. If you need more specificity from me, come see me. I'll help you out. Let's pray.